Genesis 49, verses 2 through 33. I'll just be reading 2 through 28. 10 to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency and dignity and of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. In their, in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And scatter them, I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding the donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden, and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose, he uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. 
Father in heaven, we do thank you for your precious word. I pray that you would guide us now in its uh, reading and hearing, in its opening and instruction, that you would uh, make our hearts as fertile ground to receive receive these words and to prosper by them. Uh, Please guide me with clarity of thought and restraint of words that uh, your people would be edified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the notable features of Genesis is that it is, of course, a historical book. Uh, Genesis means beginnings. It tells of the beginnings of the whole world, beginnings of humankind, beginnings of God's people. And so it is marked by narratives that recount for us unique events in the early history of the world. These narratives uh, clue us in on the distant past in a way that only, and uniquely so, first-hand observers ever could whether it's the original creation, the flood, the call of Abraham, Isaac finding his wife, other interesting family details and historical developments, Joseph's bondage in Egypt and all of this, the past is brought very vividly to our eyes as we see history unfold. Yet chapter 49 here is notable in another way. From the perspective of the speaker, Jacob, and the writer, Moses, it recounts not the past but the future. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Jacob spoke the future to his sons. Moses recorded under the guidance of the same Holy Spirit the future for later generations to read and consider. I pray that we would profit from the same Holy Spirit guiding us as we look at this text and seek to understand what was God saying to them, how it applies to us, and distinguish according to his good and perfect will. And as I always endeavor to do when I come before you, I want us to be able to see the big picture as well as the important details. I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees or forget that the trees make a forest, you know, those kinds of analogies. So for us to be able to pinpoint the key point, the key overarching idea, as well as the underlying details that fit together into that whole. So trying to understand first what the key idea is. What is that overarching principle that unites this chapter And of course, we have to recognize that chapter distinctions are not inspired, but what unites this narrative, this prophetic announcement, and the context around it? A few clues in that search. First, note that this is the first instance of a personal, human being, extended prophetic discourse. Obviously, we've had prophecies, predictions of the future, stated prior in Genesis, but they were not from the mouth of a prophet like we would think of Amos or Isaiah just going on, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter, speaking of the future. This is the first instance of that. Uh, A slight modification of that might pop into your mind, well, what about Joseph interpreting dreams? Uh, I would say it's different because it was more directly and succinct and a... um, slightly different context there. But as we think of the habit of a prophet, this is the first instance of that. Jacob speaking of the last days. But also uh, a clue for us is that precise phrase. And it's not in the text I read, it's in the preface to this chapter, verse one, which I actually dealt with in a sermon y'all missed when I was in Peoria last October. Uh, after having finished chapter 48 with you all, I preached on 49.1 for them and focused specifically on that phrase, in the last days, uh, what does it mean? And to summarize a whole sermon in one sentence, it means future, uh, speaks of the future. And uh, whether that is merely future to the speaker, it may not be future to us. Some uh, aspects of the last days, theologically speaking, are still future for us. But this phrase, 
in the last days occurs in two other uh, similar prophetic announcements that I believe give a key clue for us to understand what is the key point that the Holy Spirit is trying to draw our attention to here through Jacob. Those two other instances are Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 and Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 31. So Jacob here, Balaam there, and Moses there all use this phrase, in the last days. And a common theme among those three instances is the king. Focus on the future deliverance of God's people through a king. That deliverance comes by a king, as mentioned in uh, Numbers 23, his kingdom shall be exalted. In Deuteronomy 33, a king among his chosen people. And here, as we'll get to some of the detail in a moment, and especially within the context of the pronouncements about Judah, the the, uh, ruler will arise from the tribe of Judah. So that is a key unifying principle. We see this phrase, in the last days, it draws our attention to, well, how is it that God is gonna work out history? How is the problem of sin and death and the destruction of everything that was put in place in the garden, how is that going to be resolved? How is that going to be restored? It's going to be restored through a king, that king, of course, being the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So while there's much detail here within these uh, prophecies and even some controversy or at least some vagueness as to what exactly they mean, let us not lose the forest for the trees. Let us look a little bit at the trees, see how they fit together and understand that the forest here is talking about the restoration of that which was broken. The very goodness of the garden, recall, before sin, everything was pronounced very good. Well, a couple weeks later, it was no longer very good, but God is not done. He would not leave it in that condition. He was and is now in the progress of restoring that very goodness, and that comes through the establishment of the kingdom, as we've spoken of already, and of the king coming, which we can celebrate. Indeed, and as I put it there, is that title line in the outline, the king has come. The king was and is, continues to be Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Three key verses from the New Testament, Matthew 2, 1. He who is born King of the Jews, that announcement, right? That's who the wise men were looking for, Jesus, the one born as the King of the Jews. In John 12, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So that's speaking of John the Baptist, coming in the name of Jesus, the King. And then John himself speaking, sorry, Jesus himself speaking in John 18, I am a king for this cause. I was born. So that's Jesus, the king, the one who fixes that which was broken. He is ruling, he is reigning, he is in the process of putting all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15. So with that, as the encouraging interview, uh, sorry, overview, <laughs> introduction, this is a communion meditation, we could leave it there and move to the table, uh, but being a sermon, we'll go a little longer and look into the details here. Beginning with Reuben then, verses three through four. The key fact here is that while Reuben was the firstborn and in the tradition of the fathers would have received the birthright, the blessing, the preeminence within the family, he was not excellent. He did not excel. And there's a bit of a wordplay. It also, interestingly, uh, carries through into the English. We think of excellent being the best and we think of to excel as to get ahead 
Well, they come together in the meaning of being first. One who is excellent in terms of quality rises to the top, as it were. One who excels in a, a sport or in a discipline uh, is ahead of others. So in both those ways, Reuben should have been first in character and in place of his birth, he should have been first, but he ended up not. He fell back in the line, as it were. Uh, he did not retain the position of primacy. And why? Because of his sin as it's stated very matter-of-factly here. Uh, drawing our attention back to, I believe it's in uh, chapter 35, uh, or 33, uh, the historical incident there. Uh, the chronicler in 1 Chronicles 15 also states for us this tying of Reuben's sin with the consequences of the change of position, that he lost the birthright, which was transferred to Joseph's sons. So, very matter of fact, it's the way it works. He may have regained uh, standing with God later through repentance, but that doesn't change the consequences of it. A very valid warning for us, perhaps even vividly following on the heels of last week's sermon. The sins of the seventh commandment are very serious in God's sight. Let us be comforted perhaps that they're not unique to our generation. As was spoken of last week, they came up in other generations, in the time of the people in Leviticus, certainly, uh, in the time of the people of Genesis as well. While they can be repented of, while mercy can be gained because God is good and just and forgiving when those sins are put upon Christ, there are still temporal consequences. Jesus can bear the eternal punishment for those sins, but we will bear consequences in this life, and certainly Reuben did. So it's good for us to see these examples, those warnings from our forefathers, and to heed those warnings before we have to, or make others around us, suffer similar consequences. Uh, Simeon and Levi, in verse seven, some similarities with the previous comments for Reuben. Like those, Jacob's comments about Simeon and Levi focus on a specific act of uh, life-altering and history-determining sin. Simeon and Levi were rash and vengeful in their treatment of the Shechemites, and that's in chapter 34 of Genesis. As a consequence, what we read here is that they would be divided and scattered, context there being the future promised land. They would not have their own distinct allotment is how that came to pass. And interestingly, this came to be is a blessing for Levi of sorts, but as a curse for Simeon. Uh, looking at Simeon in Joshua 19, we read, the second lot came out for Simeon. Their inheritance was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. So they didn't have their own. Their inheritance was within the area of Judah. And also at the time of the second census, which is in Numbers 26, their numbers had dwindled significantly. I think it's like 60% of the population of Simeon had fallen off between the first census and the second census. So there is not a prospering. They become so small, they are no longer distinct. But looking at Levi, while the individual Levi shared equally in the sin with the individual Simeon, uh, the people group took a little bit different course. And certainly this is by way of God's mercy, right? He set apart the Levites to have a unique place. They didn't have their own allotment in the promised land. They were spread out, right? Levi's ministering in all the cities of the people to attend to their spiritual needs. So that is a disbursement that was ultimately a blessing whereas the dispersing or the diminishing of Simeon was by way of a curse. So relevant to us today, it is wise to know that inherent in every curse is a potential blessing and vice versa. Uh, think of the threat of doom to the people of Nineveh, right? 
That was stated factually. Implied is if you don't repent, you will be destroyed. But within that is if you repent, you will find mercy. So here, while a prophetic pronouncement of dispersing might on the face of it have seemed to be a uh, no option for another course, being doomed to a small or secondary status, with repentance comes a blessing, even in the context of some things that fit within the previous prediction. So the promise of blessing is conditioned on faith, for without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, even our meagerness is a blessing and God honors it. Third then, Judah, verses eight through 12. The words spoken to Judah uh, regard him, importantly, as the preeminent son. So while Joseph received the birthright, Judah prevailed and came, and a ruler came from him. That's also as a referred to 1 Chronicles 5.1, speaking of and restating the situation with Reuben. 1 Chronicles 5.2 gives us the summary of Judah. In the course of time, of course, it is David, the king, who came from the tribe of Judah, and then David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. Uh, the ruling authority here is pictured in the figure of a lion, that's verse nine. Uh, the scepter then in verse 10, uh, the reign is universal over the nations. Our English doesn't necessarily carry that forward. It speaks of people, and we see people as plural, but people, there really is nations. I believe it's goyim in the Hebrew. And so I think the song leading to our sermon here was very appropriate. May we be a light to the nations. That is what is being spoken of here, the worldwide spread of the kingdom of Christ. And importantly, it results in great prosperity. And then finally, in terms of the figures here in verse 12, the king himself is pictured as a perfect physical specimen. All of these facets uh, are borne out in later scripture, where we see the Messiah's reign as extending over all the nations, extending over the whole earth. Think of Psalm 72 with the gospel covering the earth just as the waters cover the sea. Many other pictures that you're familiar with, Psalm 2, Dan 7, the nations coming to Christ. The victorious king, Isaiah 63. Revelation 19, so scripture is full of fulfillments when we see this as Christ in their future, in our past and present. And then Zebulun, briefly in, in verse 13, how did this work out in history? Well, the future allotment of Zebulun, while it was landlocked, and may seem to be contradictory to this idea that they dwell by the haven of the sea, uh, it was actually situated between two seas, the Sea of Galilee, which of course is an inland body of water, and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's proposed that dwell by the sea may be better translated looked at the sea. So in a sense, to both directions, uh, they could see the sea, sorry. Bad pun not intended. Also, uh, in that, as it refers to here, Sidon, uh, the border of Sidon was towards the northwest, and that would picture an expansion. As the kingdom continues to grow, the strict boundaries extending beyond is to where Sidon would be. So all of that to speak of this continuing theme of prosperity, of enlargement, of growth, that Zebulun, along as a uh, subpart of all of God's kingdom, would enjoy. Uh, Issachar verses 14 to 15. Uh, the imagery here emphasizes goodness and rest. Uh, the original creation was good. I spoke of that at the beginning. Man was to have rest there with his God. Sadly, it did not last. 
if we aren't engaged in the good fight for that proper spiritual rest, it will be turned into slavery, that is serving another master. So think of the person who uh, toils away at his job Monday to Friday, just longing for 5 p.m. so he can hop on his you know, pickup truck with uh, ATVs in the back and you know, get away from it all. That's not a godly rest, right? That is not the satisfaction that God intends. As was wisely prayed earlier, we're lazy in our work and we're laborious in our rest. <laughs> we're not finding the balance that God calls us for. And so we are reminded here that if we aren't engaged in good work, we will never find truly good rest. The victory wrought by Christ restores that true goodness and brings the fulfillment of rest that God intended, as spoken of in Hebrews 4 and Revelation 14. And then Dan, verses 16 through 18. Words spoken here of Dan find their fulfillment, at least partly, in Samson, who of course was of this tribe, Judges 13, but also the idolatry that pervaded the Danites, sadly, in later years. Judges 18, 1 Kings 12, Amos 8, Indeed, in the midst of that apostasy, the only help is the Lord. So it's appropriate here that Jacob cries out, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Certainly, Dan's life story is not the only one in which salvation was needed. So it is an interesting question, something we can look forward to asking Jacob about. Why did you announce verse 18 right here, right? That appropriately could have been stated elsewhere. But at least we know that the only remedy for idolatry some of the idolatry evidenced in Dan's life is God's salvation. And a beautiful thing that Jacob cried out in that way here. Verse 19, Gad, very brief, similar with Sebulun. These words about uh, Gad are a sort of triple word play. Uh, the name Gad has a similar sound to troop and tramp and triumph. So uh, I believe actually the ESV is a little better in conveying that into the English where it says raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid. So if we could say Gad in a way that sounded like raiders, then we would understand raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid. So it brings up the recurring theme of the eventual victory, right? Uh, the evil comes upon us, but in victory, it comes back on them. And that is what is pictured even from the gar shortly after the fall, right? With the promise what we call the proto-evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 that while the serpent will nip at the heel his head will be crushed so we will be attacked but victory comes in response to that and of course uh, a specific fulfillment of this may lie in King David as I've already referenced and specifically with the Gadites it's noted in first Chronicles 12 that the Gadites were a particularly numerous uh, contributing tribe to the armies that supported David. And then ultimately, we are uh, conscript, conscripted soldiers in the army of Christ. Asher, coming eighth here, verse 20. Uh, clearly, this is a vision of prosperity, which Moses repeated uh, very similarly in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Uh, indeed, they did, the tribe of Asher did, inherit the fertile land of Carmel along the seacoast. So, different com commentators I read really didn't have a lot more to contribute to this. Some saying, well, it's just so obvious on the face of it. They lived in a rich land. Uh, there may be deeper meaning there. We don't know exactly. 
Naphtali, verse 21, even more brief than the previous, uh, but I believe that carries through on these themes of prosperity and abundance that come with the establishment and the growth of the kingdom. Uh, You're seeing a theme here. Kingdom expansion, prosperity, abundance. Uh, These two have a sort of uncertain meaning as to the specifics of how this played out. It could refer to the fact that much of Jesus' ministry occurred in his land, the land of Naphtali. We remember that Capernaum, a home base for Jesus' earthly ministry, was in that territory. Uh, Thus, it would be that the words of life that came from Jesus are these beautiful words referred to here by Jacob. Second to last, Joseph, the most extended portion of this discourse, verses 22 to 26. Similar themes repeated as to the idea of fruitfulness and prosperity, but unique to this section is the fact that much of it is descriptive of Jacob as a person and the history of his life that had already passed, right? Most of what's said about the others is looking forward, maybe identifying a characteristic trait then that links to the future. But for Joseph, much of this is stating about his life, how he responded to it, God's uh, grace evident in it. Uh, For example, Joseph was fruitful. So speaking of what Joseph already did, whether it was in Potiphar's house or in the jail or uh, second in command under Pharaoh, Those are things that are evidence of how Joseph lived out his life. God prospered him. He was fruitful. And then in the second half of verse 22, he was, again, past tense, describing what already happened with Joseph, he was by a well insofar as he had a deep relationship with God, right? Picture the tree by the waters, sucking up the water at the riverside or finding a deep well and really drawing from God's riches That is descriptive of Joseph's relationship. Remember, how did he respond to the temptation by Potiphar's wife? How could I offend my God, right? He had an idea of living before the face of God, what it is to be holy before him. Though he had trials at the hands of his brothers, referred to in verse 23, he persevered in grace, verse 24, and received strength also in verse 24. And then it turns to the future. So that's why I see as distinctive about this description of Joseph is so much of it is focusing on what already happened and then it links that to the future. And looking to the future, he, that is his people, that he typically represents, will receive great blessing. This theme of blessing does come up in the conclusion and I'll get to that in just a moment. But lastly, Benjamin, little Benjamin. I see some similarities here with the first verse of Judah, which is earlier in the discussion. Uh, The idea of the predator, here in Benjamin being the wolf, being successful and then coming back and relaxing, right? Think of that carnivore who gorges himself and goes and takes a nap, (laughs) right? It's not laziness, he's well nourished. He can be proud for the success from his hunt. And so this idea of um, attacking, of, of maybe military strength, arose later within this tribe. Note that it was Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, the first king. Uh, He is commended even by David as a skillful warrior. That's in 2 Samuel 1. Though, as is often the case, these positive traits can have negative consequences when not regulated by God in his spirit and his word. 
Certainly in the life of Saul that came truth, uh, but it definitely played out in the fierceness and cruelty among the Benjamites in Judges 19, and even in the Apostle Paul. Uh, think of in Acts 8, right? He was a son of Benjamin. And he, before he was saved in uh, chapter 8, he attended to the death of Stephen, holding the coats and certainly encouraging them. But Paul himself is an evidence of when that um, eagerness, that stridency can be regulated by God's spirit. It can be to a very good effect. Well, for a long conclusion, uh, let us circle back to the point I mentioned at the very beginning and then touch on what I just alluded to, the point about blessing. So having seen that detail, overall themes of expansion and prosperity of kingdom growth under the king. Remember that all fits within the principle of the restoration of what was broken. Indeed, we can see all of Genesis is really answering the question, oh, oh, wait a second, we had a good garden at the start and then it's not and how's this going to turn out? God is on a mission to fix what was broken, to restore what was corrupted. He will deliver his people and the restoration of that happens through the king. And note that that deliverance, that restoration, doesn't just happen to prove a point, as if God is powerful, therefore he can do it, or merely that he keeps his promises, as if that was just some isolated thing to put on the bookshelf and say, okay, we've got a promise-keeping God, or we've got a powerful God, or that good triumphs over evil as an ethical point. So while all those things are true, yes, God does keep his promises, yes, He is good, yes, uh, good triumphs over evil. I wanna suggest to you that there's really a greater principle of which those are contributing factors. The structure and context of chapter 49 point to this particular aspect of deliverance that the Lord accomplishes through Jesus, the King, who as verse 24 words it, and this is kind of uh, Jacob's statement of faith near the end of his life, he refers to God Christ as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. So this aspect, which I believe encompasses all of those true virtues, but is sort of greater than those, is that idea of blessing. Notice the repetition in verse 28. And so this is not Jacob's words, uh, it is the narrator's words, perhaps inspired directly to Moses, reading again. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them and he blessed them, he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So blessing, blessing, blessing. That is the key point that ties together all of what he spoke to his sons. Speaking to his sons about prosperity, about enlargement, about increase, about the establishment of a king that would accomplish all this through his people, it is a blessing. He blessed, he blessed, he blessed. The Hebrew word there, for blessed is Barak, and it represents more than I think we might think of as blessing insofar as it's easy to think of blessing as the goods received, right? My parents blessed me with a warm house, and so you've got the fire and the wood stove, you can see it, right? They bless me with food, and you can see that on the table. Well, blessings, biblically speaking, are more than just the goods that we get, that we can smile at and be comforted by. Uh, The word there and the concept of blessing speaks, first of all, to the humble position, the posture of him who receives the blessing, right? The very fact that we need to be blessed and that it is a blessing to us speaks of the fact that we lacked it to begin with, that we're dependent on another. So within that word barak is the idea of bow down and to receive. 
So blessing includes the idea of the humble posture of him who receives it, as well as then the exalted position of the one who gives it, right? If we're humble and receiving, if that's evidence of our dependence on another and our need for these goods that we get, it demonstrates the fact that there is someone higher, more exalted, infinitely so, of course, that we receive from. He is the supreme authority. And thirdly, this word evidences the character of him who blesses. God is rich in mercy. He will not withhold good from those who walk in faith. So this idea of blessing, which I suggest to you encompasses all of these prophetic announcements, speaks to us as weak and broken and dependent and in need of healing. It speaks of him who is infinitely great and generous. Just must punish sin, but good and merciful and rewarding those who pursue him in righteousness. Let us not forget also that we are blessed in Christ. We're not blessed in our actions. We're not blessed in some tangential God, uh, anonymously considered thus as our secular neighbors might, or as those of you who've been to our house for dinner and have talked about our neighbors, my friend, friend, fellow across the street who refers to the old man upstairs, right? That is not the God we're speaking of. The God through whom we are blessed is the Lord Christ Jesus. As Paul says to the Galatians, uh, chapter four, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then Ephesians one, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right, the triune God is the one who blesses. In the person of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. And with him, seated in the heavenlies, are we receiving every spiritual blessing. Well, friends, uh, Jacob blessed each of these sons particularly, and they shared in the same blessing generally. And I do pray that that would be true for all of us, for each one of you that we would drink of that same spiritual rock who is Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, of course. Much of the imagery here is rooted in the idea of a restored Garden of Eden. It was productive, it was beautiful, it was well watered, and then it was broken, but it's being restored. The future fulfillment of that is everything it was and much, much more. So may you, may we be firmly rooted in God abiding in the vine that is Christ, being filled by the Spirit with his living water, and obtaining the rest that only the God of the Scriptures can provide. These are the blessings that come from the one true and living God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is humbling to admit our need We are dependent on you to even know the state of our own hearts. We're dependent on you to know past history. Uh, We're certainly dependent on you to know the future. And you have mercifully granted us all of this. Our unbelieving neighbors have none of it. They don't know the true past. They don't know their present and they don't know the future. I pray that you would work in us humility by your grace that we would have a greater appreciation, a greater thankfulness for these manifestations of your grace in our lives and that we would have opportunity to see others coming into the kingdom similarly, that they could know their hearts, that they could know the solution for it and participate in the great future that you are building.
Uh, please give us grace as we go forward today, that grace of humility that is the counterpoint to pride and the thankfulness we have for all you have done and will do to push back on Satan and to restore all that was lost to greater glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.